You're listening to The New American Left with your host, Kieran Murphy. Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of The New American Left. Just at Thanksgiving, it became clear to me during a conversation with the family that we're in a lot more trouble than we thought. And one of the main reasons behind that is an overarching confusion that exists in all political discourse. At my family table at Thanksgiving, it's decidedly left-leaning. I mean, I'm certainly a bit of a radical, always have been kind of labeled that, <laughs> and, uh, and the rest of my family tends to be more on the moderate side, and that's fine. But what I noticed immediately is that we all have trouble understanding the spectrum itself. And even with my best friend, we always would fight all the time about labels and labeling and, you know, saying you're this or labeling somebody that, you know, saying I tend to be further left into anarchy, whereas somebody else is more of a liberal. Even using labels itself, it just doesn't work. It's insufficient. And I don't even disagree with him there, but at the same level, it's important to have a common understanding when you're going to discuss something esoteric, such as politics, and at least agree on what you're all talking about. And what I realized is that even in a left-leaning, moderate to radical, blended household, there wasn't a lot of understanding on, on where on the spectrum we all would fall and what the spectrum actually is. And it made me realize that this translates all the way through. All your social media interactions, I'm sure you've noticed, all your regular conversations, that people are having conversations and often are not talking about the same thing and often don't realize it, and it leads to confusion, frustration, and anger. And so I think it's important we're going to spend some time today trying to agree upon the idea of what a political spectrum is and what it means. It's just a way to understand where everybody's coming from. The political spectrum itself has become kind of a morass of contradictions. The lack of a common set of constants has made our discourse confusing at best and just willfully obtuse at worst. And this confusion may not have been fully intentional, but the forces of right-wing politics are certainly taking quite advantage of them. And some other amorphous set of ideals has taken its place. We've touched on this in, in a couple of episodes in Season 2, the sort of alternative history section of this, being pushed by a lot of pundits on the right and by people on social media who don't realize that they're sharing fake history. The idea that Nazism is some constitution of the left, or uh, Democrats were always the KKK, and therefore Democrats are still the party of racism, and these things that don't make any sense, but people are trying to sort of cram square pegs into round holes. An interesting place that did a good job on this recently, I'm a big fan of other podcasts for sure, and uh, Dan Carlin and Daniele Bolielli. They eloquently really brought this up in their most recent episode. Uh, it was sort of a crossover episode between History on Fire and Hardcore History. And they were, were touching on this because they were as disturbed as this as I was. <laughs> and it's good to hear. It's sort of a, a large topic of conversation in the historian, historical community. 
and as I thought Dan said rather well, you know, it's fine if you want to redefine the spectrum using new criteria, but you have to say that's what you're doing. And a lot of the confusion that we run into these days comes from the fact that that's precisely what people are not doing. They're not saying what they're doing. They don't realize what they're doing. And, you know, part of this is if you think back to growing up, for us who were born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, you know, we've been hearing Republicans call everything communism, right? And I know growing up in my suburban neighborhood, I fell victim to that confusion too. Uh, I didn't know what communism really was until I got into college and started to reborn, <laughs> gain an understanding of what these things actually mean. That, you know, communism, socialism, anarchism, these things are different. And I don't think that's vastly understood by a large population because of a couple of reasons. One, you have the right wing calling literally everything, socialism, communism, Nazism, all blended up together, which just muddies the waters incredibly, which probably is a, not a bug, but a feature, as they say. More disturbing is sort of the liberals, the center liberals who think that they're left wing and that the left wing doesn't exist. Like, uh, somewhat recently, we've seen this hashtag, like, I am the far left. And for those of us who are the far left, particularly on social media, looking at the people claiming to be the far left is interesting. <laughs> and they kind of erase our whole existence as if we don't live here and have been here for some time. And I think that that sort of ties into what I'm talking about is that they envision themselves as these left-wing radicals. And meanwhile, they are, I hate to break it to them, but center-right. See, over my entire life, what I've seen very specifically is the Republicans running to the right and the Democrats chasing them. You can see this playing out on MSNBC or whatever. If you want to tune into mainstream media, you can just watch this playing out all the time. This idea that we have to court the moderate Republican vote without acknowledging that the Republican center has moved continuously right at a steady pace for decades. So every time a Democrat goes to court a moderate Republican vote, each time that moderate is further to the right than they previously used to be. So in effect, what that moderate vote does is become an anchor, becomes a weight that drags the Democratic Party all the way to the right, all the way while still thinking and being told by their opponents that they're far-left communists. And what that does is create a completely false political spectrum where you have conservatism on the right and Nazism doesn't exist. It only exists on the left for some reason. And <laughs> communism's over there too. And anarchism's over there or somewhere else. And libertarians are on the right. And it becomes this bizarre minefield of just nonsense. You have a, a Democratic Party that's center-right, who thinks that they're far-left. That's why we can't get anywhere. I mean, we keep courting moderate Republicans, but in reality, the people who are disaffected and don't want to vote, including myself at this point, are left. Polling across the country when it comes to mainstream issues, it, it leans left. So I don't think it's a coincidence that we have low voter turnout in the country 
high disaffected feelings about voting and a loss of trust. Well, because people feel like they're not represented. <laughs> it's not that hard. It's actually simple, simple math. If I have been voting for Democrats my entire life, and this is the first, first time I really don't feel like I need to or should. I can't vote Republican. They're absolutely ridiculous. But I don't believe the Democrats are applying the right strategy. I don't feel I have to vote for them. I'm becoming a disaffected voter, and I've talked to many of them, and they all are left-leaning or are so angry at the government they don't realize they're left-leaning. <laughs> Some of those people are pretty pretty funny. Where they'll, you know, they'll say things like, "Well, I really support like you know worker-directed co-ops and enterprises," and and it's just like that's kind of socialism, you know. And they're, you know, <laughs> meanwhile, they used to be conservatives, you know, in the, in their mind. It's like a lot of these people who feel cast out, I think you really could constitute the left if we all understood what we meant when we said that. And that's the big issue here, is the lack of trust in anything. It's all eroded. Nobody agrees on anything. I don't trust the guy next to me. I mean, cynicism is tremendous right now. I'm, 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 I'm tremendously cynical. How can you not be when you see what's going on? So I think it's important that we have those conversations in real life, I might add. Get out, talk to your friends and family. See if you can all come up and understand what the basis for the political spectrum is. And if you can do that, well, then you're in pretty good shape because then you can at least agree on what the parameters are of the political spectrum that you are talking about. And that doesn't have to be a fixed thing. I mean, it evolves over time. I get that. And as I'll mention the Hardcore History episode one more time, because he makes, Dan makes a great point in that, where he says, you know, as long if you want to use different parameters to determine your political spectrum, that's fine. You just need to actually say what they are. <laughs> so if you're going to judge things differently, you have to say why you're doing that. But if you're just doing it for, what, for some reason, because someone told it to you, you should question it. <laughs> Trust has eroded to a degree that it's really, I think, quite dangerous. I look at myself. I'm quite cynical. I, I think there's very good reason to be. And apparently I'm not alone. Because as I read in Yuri Friedman's article, Trust is Collapsing in America, featured in The Atlantic in January 2018, it used to be what Edelman labels the informed public. Those aged 25 to 64 who have a college degree, regularly consume news, and are in the top 25% of household income for their age group place far greater trust in institutions than the U.S. public as a whole. This year, however, the gap all but vanished, with trust in the government in particular plummeting 30 percentage points among the informed public. America is now home to the least trusting informed public of the 28 countries that the firm surveyed, right below South Africa. Distrust is growing most among younger, high-income Americans. So what are we supposed to glean from that? I think the working class has mistrusted the government for some time. You know, rightly so. But the thing that keeps this type of oligarchy that we live in moving is when the upper echelons of folks keep trusting in the system. 
you know, they're going to keep the system going. That's not necessarily a good thing. But when they start to lose faith in their own system, chaos is around the corner. There's a part of me and there's some of you out there who, you know, chaos might be an inevitability. But I think it's important to acknowledge that these are the conditions for chaos, what we're seeing. We have no agreed upon facts. We have balkanization, really, like complete tribalization of political groups in the country. Again, I'm not even necessarily against that. Some of this stuff feels sort of like a natural evolution to me in many ways. But these are the elements for revolution. And I mean that in the literal sense, not in a Hollywood sense, but a general change of the way that we know things to work. I mean, and you can see it all around the society. This isn't an isolated incident in America. We see the yellow vests in France. We see building tensions in the UK over the Brexit decision. We see the election of far-right leaders like Bolsonaro down in Brazil. We see riots and revolution in the streets of Haiti. It's everywhere you look, even here at home. White nationalist killings have been on the rise. They have been for a couple of years, but in this past year alone, we had the Tree of Life synagogue attack. 11 people killed. The attack at the Kroger supermarket. Two people killed. The attack at the yoga studio in Florida. Two more people killed. The attack at the Waffle House. Four people killed. The attack at Parkland School. 17 people killed. And then also groups like Adam Waffen and the killing of Blaze Bernstein and the other murders that they've been connected to. I'm just trying to say that the writing's on the wall here. And that means that we have to look at things realistically. Look at how many of the plots have been foiled, so to speak. That list is terrifying and doesn't get nearly the immediate attention that the actual attacks do. The more notable ones would be the MAGA bomber, of course, and this Coast Guard person most recently with the, uh, the hit list for all people, all Democrats on the left. This is the reality that we're facing. I mean, we're at war right now, and it really seems to me that we're, we're losing the information side of this war because nobody even is acknowledging what's going on. I mean, there are people dying, there are casualties inflicted. Where's the recognition? Because when we go back to my Thanksgiving table, the panic was all about Russia. Now, do I think that Russia probably had some shady dealings with Trump? Yeah, I would say probably. I grew up in New York. So I can tell you that throughout my entire life, the name Trump has been synonymous with the idea of shady. If not shady, gaudy. Fake. That's all Trump ever has been, is a shady deal. So I wouldn't surprise me one bit if he had some connections with the Russians. But what I think the more important point is, is that the election of Trump is far less to do with Russian puppet masters than it has to do with showing our true self as a nation. Effectively, all we've done is rip down all the window dressing, 
and all the fancy wrapping paper and laid bare our soul and the soul of this country is not as clean as you may have thought it was. The election of Trump, be it helped by Russians or not, has revealed that fact. And we must all confront the history of this country and the society which we all live in. Now, some of us knew it wasn't as good as we'd hoped. But I think a lot of people are coming to the realization that it just simply wasn't the America they thought it was. And that's okay. We can forgive you for not realizing it, but it is time to wake up and realize it. Okay, now, if you found that depressing, there is a cure. Get out and get involved. It's cliche as hell for a reason. A couple weeks ago, we went out and were out with the Denver teachers when they were on strike. And we ran into our Twitter friends and fellow Coloradans wild. The Workers Initiative for Liberation and Defense. They had partnered with the Denver ISO and also the DSA, I believe, and were doing tamales for teachers. And basically handing out food uh, to get to the teachers who were striking and the people who were supporting them. And, you know, we wanted to come down and donate some of our food products that we produce and just help in any way we could. But I was so inspired personally by those folks uh, because I forget it was such a quick moment, but I just laughed hard because I, I was talking to a gentleman about this and I was like, you know, it just, it's really great to see this going on. It, it just feels good to be out here. And he's like, yeah, he's like, People aren't nearly as mean out in real life as they are on Twitter, right? And I, we both had that sort of a chuckle, and he was 100% right. Get away from the, the nonsense and get out and just volunteer with a local organization. Do what you can to help. And it is a step in the right direction away from the abyss that is forming around all of us. Because we need each other to get through this craziness. All that darkness I just talked about and listed a moment ago. The only thing that's going to save us is us. We save us. So we all got to come together and get out and help. You will feel better. You will be reignited. While I was down there, I was lucky enough to talk to Manasse Oso, a representative from the Denver Teachers Union, and he gave me the rundown on exactly what they had been up to. Um... Yeah, we've been striking as teachers, I mean, as teachers, as ISO, like, all together. Yeah, we've been striking against, uh, basically, merit pay or this incentive-based pay, which is this market reform, whatever, for, um, that has sort of uh, lowered lowered uh, teachers' base salaries, base pay salaries, and tries to sort of um, uh, cover it. Cover it with uh, with these uh, bonuses, which are unreliable and um, uh, yeah, they're not consistent. Un- not right? consistent bonuses, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, so I mean, the strike has officially been you know it was called on the 28th or something, and then uh, eventually the you know the governor decided not to intervene, and um, so yeah, we hit the streets um, in front of our schools. We've been picketing at our individual schools, and then meeting up for larger regional rallies or pickets. Um, uh, we started bargaining yesterday, yeah, and that went way, way, way late in the night. But I heard that it was like, you know, I didn't, well, I, didn't I haven't like been keeping up with all of the particulars. Um, but um, I heard it went fairly well last night, and that they're pretty close even, even today. Um, 
Yeah, that's a brief somewhat. Yeah, like that's, I, I mean, that's perfect. And then tamales I mean, yeah. with teachers, which is a uh, uh, Denver ISO, DSA, and Wild the Front Rage, uh, Front Rage Workers Initiative, and uh, and Defense has um, has been organizing this tamales for teachers campaign to just you know uh, provide support. Obviously, get some socialist politics injected into the you know strike wave and stuff. So where can people go around the country if they want to help support you guys? Um, where can they go? Shoot, uh, the GoFundMe.com slash. It's on your Facebook, right? Yeah, I'll pull that. I'll pull yeah, okay. that. <laughs> I'm happy to report that the day after that, the Denver teachers settled their strike and declared victory. So, strikes work, folks. Solidarity. It's important. I mean, out on that picket line with those teachers, I saw local construction unions. I saw anarchists. I saw... Marxist-Leninists, I saw DSA, everyone was there working together for the right reasons. And it truly was beautiful. Ah, one more thing. What worries me is hinging everything upon the Russia question. Because when you do that, it allows you to escape culpability and responsibility for the role that we all played in this. Because liberals were there too. Liberals have not been perfect. And I don't know how you consider yourself on the left wing and you're still pro-regime change in Venezuela. Particularly when in our lifetime we have seen how many examples of regime change being an abject disaster? So that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying don't hinge everything on the Russia thing. Is if you do that, then you can just place all of your blame on this boogeyman named Vladimir Putin rather than recognize the fact that we have democratic politicians standing on the border of Venezuela making propaganda videos. Looking at you, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I mean, this is the problem with our ever-shifting political spectrum. This is why things need to be established correctly. This is absurd. We are living in a state of absurdity. They want you to think that they're part of some vast resistance. What have they resisted? What has Trump genuinely been unable to accomplish that he wanted to do? There's no time for resistance, for paper mache tigers. And if we support politicians as people on the left going forward. We have to do so knowing full well that we're compromising the best we can with a system that we know full well has left us behind and forgotten about us. And that's why I'm not going to vote shame anyone ever again. If you don't want to vote, I get it. I understand why. They don't care about us. They don't want us to succeed. They're happy living in their state of resistance. And maybe it's time we introduce them to the state of rebellion. Don't get captured. You've been listening to The New American Left. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and visit us at thenewamericanleft.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at the new A-M-E-R left.